So we're in this series called Carols, and I'm really enjoying this series. We're taking a carol every single week, and we're talking about that carol and how it kind of uh, describes the nativity scene and what it means. And, and the truth is, all the carols, they're not usually theological treatises, but treatises, but they are actually, if you peel them away, if you look deeper, you will see a really big meaning buried within them. My hope, and, and my hope is that this series will make you think about these carols in a different way. So every year as you, we return to these carols and we sing them together, that, um, that, that there'll be something thoughtful and uh, a greater depth to your singing and to your worshiping together. And so today, uh, we're looking at the, a truth that's presented in the classic carol, Away in a Manger. Away in a Manger. This carol was first published in a Lutheran Sunday school curriculum in 1885. And there's some controversy about who actually wrote this carol. Because for a long time, many said it was written by Martin Luther, the father of the Great Reformation. And so it was, it, it was thought to have been his song for many, many years. And, but then as more research has been done, as, as more studied it, uh, they don't, they, people, most people don't believe it was actually written by him. And it's a, still a bit of a mystery who actually wrote these words. But most people believe that it was created somewhere in America during the 19th century and was put to words by an American author, uh, put to a, 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 a melody by American author. And so this mystery still attaches to this beautiful little children's song. And it's no mystery that this song has touched hearts as it's sung over many, many decades. You've probably sung it many times throughout your life. You can kind of hear it in your head right now, can't you? Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. You want to sing the second verse, don't you? Come on, sing it. Some of you are like, a second verse? Is there a second verse? (laughs) Come on, sing it with me. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky. And stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. 
Come on, you got to sing that third verse with me. Everybody together. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and take us to heaven to live with thee there. Good job. Way to go. Don't you, don't you love that song? It's so sweet. It's so tender. It usually brings warm feelings and fond memories to us, but this morning, I want to bring to you an idea a particu- of this particular carol that is actually quite challenging. It's really a, a, a challenge. There's an idea in this carol that kind of sticks it to us. So we're going to go there today, okay? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to say, stick it to me. Come on, say it. All right, you asked me, so here we go. There's a little phrase used over and over again that carries a powerful punch, and it is this phrase, the little Lord Jesus. Don't you love that? It's kind of adorable, right? Just the little Lord Jesus, it's meaningful. But in some ways, focusing on the baby as Jesus, sometimes it, will, it, it can do us a disservice. He's not... He's not simply defined by the immortal words of Ricky Bobby as dear eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. But there's so much more to this Jesus who came as a baby, more to what God intended for the world, for you and me. Actually, I think there are many people today that live like he is just an eight pound, six ounce Jesus. That's what Ricky Bobby said in that classic scene. Well, you can serve whatever Jesus you want to, but I like the baby Jesus. And so rather than focusing on the size of the baby, I think what we need to do is focus on the word Lord. Today we're going to focus on the word Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the big idea for today. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In fact, the New Testament refers to Jesus at least 740 times. Luke's gospel, dealing with the birth of Jesus, he calls him Lord at his birth. We'll read it together. It's in your message notes. Luke 2, 8 through 12, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone Around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's what we talked about last week. If you want to check out that message, you didn't hear it, it's onechapel.com. Go listen to the podcast. Really, really awesome. Carol, last week, today, verse 11 says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
It's important to realize that this was the news that people had been waiting for for centuries, that God's people had been waiting for for centuries. The angel shows up and says, he's here, and he's the Lord. From the very beginning of the story, it's clearly established that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He is Christ the Lord. What does that mean to you and to me, though? What does it mean to us to say that Jesus is Lord? What, if Jesus is Lord, does that mean in our everyday life? What does it mean to, in every area of our lives? What does it mean in my marriage? What does it mean in my dating relationships? What does it mean as I'm finishing finals? What does it mean to make Jesus your Lord? The word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios, and it means supreme in authority. And a word that is not used a lot in regards to Jesus, but controller. Controller is part of the, the meaning. Jesus, the controller. I can hear it already in your minds. For many of us, that word controller is a challenge because if Jesus is the controller, he's got some serious competition in me. Because I want to be in control. Thankfully, I don't have that problem. I don't have any, any need for control. None. Zero. It's not a problem for me at all. I am not a control freak. As long as everything goes my way and everybody does what I say, I have no problem. I do. I want to be in control. Don't you want to be in control? It's like, I want to be in control of everything. Like, think about it. Driving the car. Oh, my goodness. I can hardly sit in the passenger seat because no one drives right. (laughs) My wife and I have, I mean, some of our major fights have been in the car when I'm in the passenger seat and she's driving. It's terrible. The television remote? Come on, people. I'm the only one that knows how to properly scroll at the right speed. I don't know what's wrong with the rest of my family. It's just weird. It's just like, you're going too fast. I can't see what's going on. My kids, they're like, too late, got to go all the way around the horn. Don't even get me started on the dishwasher. Don't put plates in the top rack. Who does that? They don't go there. The plates go in the bottom. The glasses go in the top. Listen, you're laughing because you're the same way. (laughs) In some area of your lives, you are control freaks. You wake up and you want your day to go just the right way. You, some of you are crazy list makers. <laughs> Don't mess with my list, man. Or you want your kids to be just right. You, like, you like want them to be just right. You want to control your children and they need to look right and do right. And, and honestly, if you try to control your children, you ruin them. But nowhere is our need for child control more clear than at Christmas time itself. You want it all to be just perfect on Christmas morning. The kids will come downstairs and their hair combed and teeth brushed. 
We'll sit together quietly for some nice cinnamon buns and then read Luke chapter 2. No one will fight. Our pictures will be Instagram worthy. Angels will sing. You already know it's not going to turn out that way. It's not going to be perfect, but you want to control what it looks like. You, you want it to be perfect. So many Christmas pictures, we want them to be perfect. And yet, they turn out like this. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. I'm just not sure. There's some big ball here. It appears that this one's been knocked out. <laughs> I don't know if the sister did it or not, but it's just really bad. As a parent, it's like all you really want. I mean, at the end of the day for Christmas, you just want your children to look at the camera. Just look at the camera. But family Christmas pictures always end up like this. Like, check this out. I mean, this, this guy is the only one who's got his... He's like, I'm just going to stay right here. I'm just going to keep smiling. So instead of just taking your own pictures, you pay hundreds of dollars for a professional to do it, and you get this. Faceplant. What is this? This is not good. I mean, this is a, this is, I mean, honestly, this is kind of cute. Like, you can see this on a Christmas card, but it's what happens after that's so bad. Here's a picture of a person trying to impress their family with their new relationship. Check it out. Yeah, that's sweet, isn't it? Yeah, it's Merry Christmas. But it may be a little premature when this is really the reality. You see, you see what's happening here? It's like, this is so sweet. This is her. Here's her. She's got her arms in the shoes. That's really awkward. Here's a holiday treat that turns into a dumpster fire right here. We call that gingerbread souffle. Gingerbread house souffle. But here's my favorite. When you're... When your little brother gives you the gift, you'll always remember. Is that disgusting? Like, you, look, you can see, you, you can see he's kind of thinking about it. It's coming up in the first picture. It's like, oh, something's going on, and then all over. That's a picture you'll keep forever. <laughs> Listen. You want to control it, but you can't. Jesus is in supreme authority. He's in charge. Jesus is Lord. And we're going to explore what it means today to make Jesus the Lord of our life. Not to get too technical, but right up front here, we need to just settle this. The reality is we don't actually make Jesus Lord. That's your fill in the blank there. We don't, just, we don't make Jesus Lord. He's God. He's already Lord. We don't make him Lord. What we do is surrender. Everybody say surrender. Surrender ourselves to what he already is. We surrender our lives to his lordship. We surrender to his supreme authority. We surrender ourselves to the only one who is really in charge. We surrender to the Lord. 
And this is incredibly challenging. Because there are, there are essentially two levels of surrender. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Two levels of surrender. The first level is partial. The partially surrendered life. The partially surrendered life. I'm afraid this is where the majority of American Christians live. As you look around the world, you see much more devotion where there is persecution. But here there are so many what we would call casual or cultural Christians. They're just Christian in name only. Craig Groeschel, a great pastor and author, he, he wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. The Christian Atheist. Here's what a Christian Atheist is. The person who believes in God but lives like he doesn't exist. He believes in God but he lives like he doesn't exist. This is the partially surrendered life. The tragedy is that we've so often called people to believe but not to obey. We call them to believe something but not to obey. We use passive words to invite people to Jesus. Won't you accept him as if Jesus had low self-esteem? Jesus didn't ask people to accept him. He commanded them to follow him. He didn't ask people to accept him. He commanded them to follow him. Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. I love how it's written in the Message Bible. Check it out, the Message, the modern-day translation by Eugene Peterson. It says, Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. Look what he said in Luke chapter 6, 646. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why are you only giving me lip service? I don't want lip service. I want life service. I don't just want talk. I want walk. Why are you calling me Lord and then doing whatever you want to? And it's as if Jesus is challenging them and saying, look, this isn't a game. There are serious things at stake here. There are still many people who believe in Jesus as Lord but still want control. I believe he's Lord, but I I still want to be in charge. I believe he's Lord, but I still want to do whatever it is I want to do. I believe he's Lord, but I just can't trust him with everything. One of my favorite (laughs) images is of a pastor friend of mine who was counseling a couple and he was kind of working through some scriptures with them and he would make the, have them read the scripture that they needed to work on and, and then ask him if they would be willing to do what the scripture says. And uh, they would say yes, but then he would take them through their journey so they would know, no, you're not really doing what this says. Are you really willing to do it? And the answer was, I, I don't know if I can do that. Then he'd just pull open his drawer and pull out some scissors and hand them the scissors. So here, just go ahead and cut that verse out. You're not going to use it anyway. 
And then, the, you know, the guy would like take the scissors and go, oh, I can't do that. Well, that is what you're doing. People think that pastors kind of tell everybody what to do and get what they want. Please. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Because so many people don't do what I tell them they should do. <laughs> I remember one particularly heartbreaking counseling session. It was the last time I ever spoke to this man on the phone. Because we'd been through a long series of discussions about leaving his wife. He'd been found to have had an affair and they were trying to, you know, work through it and it was kind of back and forth but ultimately he just wanted to leave his wife his wife was willing to stay with him but he just at the end of the day he said to me I remember, I'll never forget this on the phone he said Pastor Ross you, you, you have something already predetermined that you want for me when you are not considering my wants and I was like yeah, I'm telling you what the Bible says. It's not what I want for your life. It's what Jesus wants for you. And he said, I know it's wrong, but I just think it, it, I, I, I have to do this. I know it's wrong, but I just have to do this. And his marriage blew up and a whole friend group blew up and it was really sad. We end up denying his lordship by the way we live our lives. When it comes to someone hurting me, you might say, comes to someone hurting me, I know Jesus says I should pray for them, but there's no way, not after what they did to me, I'll never forgive them for that. I know that I should, what I should do with my money I should trust God and not go into deep debt and I, I should tithe my 10%, but that's crazy. No way am I doing that. Besides, I need a boat. I get that when it comes to my time and the way that I live, I'm supposed to give it to him. So I give him some of my Sundays when it's not football season. I'm just so tired the day before. You know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not giving, I can't give up my Friday and Saturday night. That's for party. I, I got to sleep sometime. See, what happens is we strip the cross of its power by the way we live our lives. It's not the words we say that really make the difference. It's the way we live. And then... We wonder why our faith isn't strong and we aren't fulfilled. Jesus is saying, hang on, hang, hang, hang on a second here. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say. It's a partially surrendered life. We end up rewriting the scripture. Here's the uh, partially surrendered version of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. PSV, I like to call it. The partially surrendered version is, trust in the Lord with some of your heart and lean heavily on your own understanding. In some of your ways, acknowledge Him and you can make your own path straight. 
If you're kind of new to church or the Bible, that is not the actual verse. I just want to clarify that. that the, the actual verse we'll read here in a moment. But here's the thing I want you to remember today. Jesus isn't a part-time Lord, and he's not looking for part-time followers. When you come to him, he asks you to give him your whole life. Everything. Polycarp was a bishop during a time of bitter attacks against Christians. At the age of 86, he was arrested for no other crime than for being a Christian. All he had to do was to avoid torture and and death was to proclaim Caesar is Lord. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years old, think of it. Lived this full life. He, he, could have just, he could have just gone quickly at the end. But after you give your life away that way, it's hard to stop. For Polycarp, the fact that Jesus is Lord meant he could not say Caesar is Lord. Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs and was burned alive at the stake on February 22nd, A.D. 156. We reject the Lordship of Jesus in much less intimidating ways for much much less intimidating reasons. Even at 86, Polycarp is refusing to live a partially surrendered life. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. You want to find your life? You're going to have to let go of it. Let go of it. In other words, you have to give it away. You surrender to him. You come under his lordship. He gets to define what's right and wrong. He's the one who's in charge. He's the Lord of all. There's no more picking and choosing. Would you take a moment right now and, and be very open to what God might show you? Ask this question prayerfully. What have I not surrendered to the Lord? Could be a number of things. To be, to be open and honest before God and name whatever it is, that's so significant. For some of you, it could be your future. You've got it all lined up. Career's going just right. You got a plan. I'm going to graduate from this school, and then I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to get a great job in this kind of city, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be married at some point, and, and, and at such a time, I'm planning it out. And if I'm not, then God's not really there. So many people I talk to, they, they have this plan for their life, and then they go off course a little bit, and suddenly it strikes some sort of faith and faith crisis in their lives and they, they, they suddenly begin to doubt that God is with them. For others of you, it might be your kids. I trust God with all these different things, but not my kids. Like they're my kids and I'm going to do whatever it is that they need from me and I'm going to give them everything and I'm, I'm, I, yes, I'm going to worry about them all that I want when I want, but I've got to be in control of them. You'll ruin them. For others, it might be a relationship. I'm just not going to do what God wants me to do. You might think, I know I'm dating the wrong person and I shouldn't be. I, he's not drawing me closer to Jesus. In fact, he's pulling me away, but I love him, baby. And I can change him. 
you and I can't change anybody. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's a work of God, the Lord himself. But we just hold on to control. What is it you haven't surrendered? There have been many, many times when I've had to surrender in my life. And several of them have been in the last eight years in regards to one chapel. Because pastors are no different. They see themselves going in a direction. They see the church being this picture that they've created, that they identify. And I was no different. I had this picture and I, and I saw it. And when it didn't become exactly what I thought God wanted or I hoped that God wanted, then I had to go through a process to surrender to Jesus, by the way, who is the only one who builds his church. We want to build it because that seems fun and hope Jesus makes some disciples. It's not how it works. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But he told us to make disciples. So I, I have had to surrender over and over again to lower my head in reverence and to lower my head to what's on the ground right in front of me and disciple the people that are near me. That's what he's called us to do. The truth is for almost all of us in one way or another are living a partially surrendered life. And the, the thing that I'm not suggesting is that you've got to live a perfect life. I'm not talking about living a perfect life. That's that, Jesus isn't asking that. But he does want the fully surrendered life. That's number two, the fully surrendered life. He's not saying, I need you to live perfectly. He's saying, whatever you come to, whatever crossroads you come in your life, whatever's going on in your life, he wants you and me to surrender it. Living a fully surrendered life is going all in on this thing, not a Sunday kind of Jesus follower, not when it's only convenient. I'm talking about a full-on no holding back. My life doesn't belong to me, but belongs to him commitment. Paul said it this way, Romans 14, for none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. But if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's a curious scripture that probably most of you have never read. You live for the Lord, you die for the Lord. How, let me ask you a question. How many of you are living? 50%? It's great. It's good. Yeah, it's me. Let me ask it again. <laughs> How many of you are living? Good, excellent, excellent. If you live, why do you live? You have to answer that question. For whose honor do you live? It is to honor whom? It is to honor the Lord, the curious, the supreme in authority, the Lord. And if we die, it is to do what? To honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, if we're a follower of Jesus, who do we belong to? We belong to the Lord. It, we are His. Our life is not our own. We belong to Him. It's kind of like this wedding ring. This wedding ring means I belong to Amy. And I, tried, I, I really don't take this off very often because um, <clears throat> I want everybody to know that I belong to Amy. And I want everybody to know that Amy belongs to me. 26 years ago, I bought her the most expensive ring that a 26-year-old could ever buy. <laughs> and I asked her, will you be mine? 
And, and, and I said, will you marry me? Now, let me ask you a question. How much did that ring cost her? How much did that ring cost her? No, it didn't cost her anything. It cost, it cost me a lot. More than I had, frankly. But how much did it cost her? It didn't cost her anything. It didn't cost her one thing, but when she received it, when she received the gift, how much did it cost her? It cost her everything at that point. When she stood at the altar and we exchanged those rings, and we stood before God and before this community of friends, and we said vows to each other, it cost her everything. She gave her life to me in the same way I gave my life to her. I can hear your brains clitter clacking. I don't even know what that word is, but it can hear it. Some of you are like, wait a minute, Pastor Ross. She doesn't belong to you. You don't, you don't belong. To, like, that's weird. Like, don't get... No, she does. She belongs, and I belong to her. We gave our lives to each other. And we gave our lives to the Lord. The Apostle Paul, this is a biblical concept of marriage. The biblical concept of marriage, Paul calls it a picture of how we give our lives to the Lord when you give your life to each other. Here's the thing. When Jesus gave his life and died for you, he offered it as a free gift, right? Salvation. It is by grace that you're saved through faith. Salvation costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. But when you say yes to him, you no longer own the rights to your life. You belong to him. You surrender to his lordship. You're no longer your own, no longer the controller he is. That's why it's concerning when we see a casual approach to Jesus. He's my eight pound, six ounce, tiny little baby Jesus. He's my homeboy. He's my buddy. Jesus isn't just the little Lord Jesus baby in a manger. He's not just the Lord Jesus on a cross dying for our sins. He's the soon returning, conquering, reigning, ruling, supreme authority coming back with a sword and his name is on it. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who he is. And he means business. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Here's the original verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's the real verse. The word acknowledge in the Hebrew language is yada. The same word is also translated to know, to know. It's the same word that describes the intimate relationship with Adam knowing Eve. So it could be, in all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. In all your ways, know him and he'll make your path straight. Because the bottom line, the reason we don't surrender some area of our lives to his lordship is because we don't know him in those areas. We don't let him into those areas. To know him is to love him. To know him is to trust him. To know him is to surrender to him. When you know that he is ever-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, good in every way, he is holy, set apart from us. He's the ruling and reigning king of the universe. He's not just some faraway, powerful God. See, that's why Jesus came as a baby. He wanted us to see that he was willing to come close. 
And Jesus grew up to be a man who did miracles and reached out to the poor and helped those who were in need. And then he did the unthinkable. He took the sins of the world upon himself and died on a cross for our sins, my sin, your sin, the sins of the whole world. And then he was buried. And then he was raised to life in resurrection power. See, this is the thing that we don't, we tend not to believe. That if you lose your life to Jesus, that he has something better. That's, that's what happens to us. We believe the lie that I know what's better. That I have a better idea. And, and, I, and I think, I don't think this is flippant. Like, I think this is a reality that all of us are wrestling through in this room. Me included. But he's not just some faraway God that, that wants your obedience. He wants you to know him and he wants to know you. He is a relational God who came as Emmanuel, God with us, because he wanted to reveal himself. And so he sent Jesus so we could relate to him, that he, we would know that he knows how hard this life is and how much help we actually need. Look at Luke 10, 27. Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. It's a relational command. It's a holy, fully committed life, not a partial feel good. I like this. I don't like that. And it's, it's all in a love relationship where I know him. And then as I know him, I understand how good he is, and I want to obey him. Amy doesn't stay with me because of some empty promise she made on a stage 26 and a half years ago. She stays with me because of an intimate, ongoing, loving relationship. It's because we know each other. We've given our lives to each other, and there's no going back. It's an everyday, living, thriving relationship. And I don't want you to be under any illusion that you are all good in life just because you joined a church one day. Or because you got baptized one day. Or, or you checked some religious box. There's so much more to the Christian faith. The gift of eternal life may not cost you anything, but your only reasonable response to recognizing what you've been given is to give your whole life to Jesus. And if you're not doing that, at some point, we have to ask ourselves, each of us has to ask the question, do we really know him? I love this verse, Matthew 7. Look at it. Matthew 7, 21 says, knowing, this is the Message Bible again, modern day translation by Eugene Peterson. He says, knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, Jesus says. Thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Is heavy. In our world, it would be, I went to church every now and then. I gave somebody some, some money to the guy who rings the bell at the mall. I helped, I helped a, the lady cross the street. Didn't I do these good things, Lord? Jesus says, I never knew you. 
because you're not in a relationship with me. Yes, you gave me lip service, but we didn't know each other. There were areas of your life that you kept from me. You called me Lord, but you didn't do what I said. And there's a big difference between calling Jesus Lord and surrendering to his lordship. He's not a part-time Lord, and he's not looking for part-time followers. He gave us a free gift of eternal life. He wants the only reasonable response. Now, one more time, before you bow your head and close your eyes and we pray together, I want you to listen to me. We're not talking about living a perfect life. We're talking about when you stumble into that season where it's hard to let go of control, that you're willing to surrender. It may even take you some wrestling, but you're willing to wrestle. It's when you give up the wrestling and give up the willingness to be surrendered that you begin to stray away from him, that you begin to not know him. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads and I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you as we come to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is a place that so accurately describes what happened to Jesus and how he wants to include you in the life that he lived and the life that he gave up because the bread represents the body of Christ which was broken for you and for me. And that brokenness was for our healing. This table represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I want you to check this out. What happened to Jesus? He was broken. He surrendered his life. I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus lived a perfect life, and then at the end of his life, he's found in the Garden of Gethsemane, draped over a rock, praying and asking his father if this cup can pass from him. And then he says these amazing words, not my will, but your will be done. He had to surrender. And this table before us is a symbol of, of his surrender and it can be a symbol of your surrender as well would you come to this table and be willing to take whatever it is that's in your life and would you bring it to this table would you exchange it in an act of communion with Jesus himself would you receive what he has as you give him what you have he's really interested he'd really like that for you to be him to be involved in every area of your life Father, we come to you now and we prepare our hearts to come to this table. And would you speak to us and would you pinpoint the area of our lives that we need to give up, that we need to surrender to make you Lord of our lives. Many of us are sitting here and we, we know, we know what that area is because we've held it from you. We choose today to open our hand. We ask you, to lead us to those areas that we don't, we may be not even aware of that we're holding back from you. Help us to see ourselves accurately through the mirror of the scriptures. We want to surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.